Do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping backboard. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. Let's roll. <laughs> slapping glass. Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome Coach Cody Toppert, assistant men's basketball coach at the University of Memphis. In this insightful and wide-ranging basketball and life conversation, we discuss Coach Toppert's stops at the NBA, G League, and high major Division I level, as well as his time playing in Europe. We discuss special situations, how to get players to buy into player development, Will Ferrell, and so much more. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast, follow us on Twitter and YouTube, and subscribe to our newsletter, which comes out on Sunday mornings and consolidates much of the breakdowns that we and others around the world of basketball have done throughout the week. And now, without further ado, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Cody Toppert. I want to start with uh, kind of a fun question for you. You've played internationally in a bunch of different countries and cities and been over there. Any particular favorite spots in Europe from your time playing overseas? You know, it's funny. People ask me that all the time. I mean, what I really enjoyed every location for different reasons, right? Um, I mean, I enjoyed Italy, right, for the food and kind of the history there. Uh, I, I enjoyed Spain because of the people I got to meet. Germany was such a clean country; it's easy to live in. I, I really enjoyed kind of the infrastructure there. When I lived in when I lived in Portugal, I had to light a pilot light in my kitchen to get hot water in my shower, and the water never got hot. So that was kind of brutal. I ended up walking across the street to the arena to shower in the locker room. But you know, we do what we have to do. Uh, New Zealand, great place to live, a lot of nice people. So overall, me and my wife, we had just such great experiences all across the board that we really enjoyed our time. And again, each country is unique, like in their own different way. And what we always try to do is just dive into the culture when we were there, you know, make friends uh, with people who uh, are local or native to that country. And, and, and we've built long lasting relationships with those people. And we've really enjoyed that element of it. You played overseas, uh, you played at Cornell, and then you, you played overseas for, um, for a period of time in all these different countries. How did your overseas playing experience um, kind of set up how you view things as a coach now and the things that you do? What did you learn overseas that you've taken with you in your different stops that you um, have been at? Yeah, no, I think, I think it, 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 the, the good thing for me was when I, I played for Steve Donahue at Cornell, he's the head coach at Pennsylvania right now, University of Penn. And he was and is a, a brilliant offensive mind. And so he kind of laid the foundation in terms of understanding how to play, right? Don't just play the game, understand how to play the game. And the system that we were running to kind of combat our lack of athleticism or length or things of that nature was uh, already kind of lent itself to, to the basketball IQ component, right? And our ability to compete with high majors right after I left, they'd win three Ivy League championships in a row and lose to Kentucky with John Wall and Boogie Cousins in the Sweet 16, right? And so for me, that was kind of a great foundation, a perfect segue. But then as I went over and kind of got into my European, uh, you know, basketball career, I saw the game in a different light. And to me, it, it just, it, again, I had the foundation. And then the next step 
was uh, kind of learning the game in these different countries and, and different elements of the game that I think stood out to me, things like in Spain, right? Like uh, understanding how to run sets that have multiple actions right before actually what you're going to get into, right? Whether you want to call it fluff or not, but you know, it's kind of side to side and now we're into the action. Uh, Italy, you know, was really, uh, our offense was, was heavy on uh, handbacks or hot potato exchange, right? Like to me, which was new, which is like pass, run after it, get it back. We call that zoom action uh, here at the university of Memphis. And so you kind of saw these different things. And now the best part about, uh, you know, I was in the BlackBerry generation, right? So, I mean, I was over there. I wish I had all the pictures to commemorate the places I was. But with that being said, too, YouTube, Twitter, all this stuff, not even in the, you know, in in, in, in the picture. And so it, the basketball world wasn't as small as it is today, right? And thanks to a thing like Zoom here, we can do do stuff like this. But there's so many more resources now that the basketball world has grown even smaller. Those resources allow us as coaches right to educate ourselves understand what's going on in some other far reaching element, you know, part of the world up until that, right. It was always a big mystery. And so the best part was that I got to see it firsthand and it got to be a part of my learning experience. But, you know, when I got back to the United States, right, it's only, uh, it's kind of a reintroduction to American basketball now. Right. And, and from there, the differences are so, are so uh, can be extreme at times, but what we're seeing in the, in a current iteration of the NBA is, a great blend of what I think are European concepts with traditional NBA spacing and pace concepts that is kind of making a really exciting time to, to be a coach, uh, to be a fan. Uh, and I think ultimately to be a player uh, where you get to kind of react and make decisions rather than just run it up and, uh, you know, walk it up and run sets. Coach, as you got back to the States or how was your transition then from being a player into getting into coaching? Did you always want to be a coach? Did it something that kind of just fell in your lap when you know, playing's over? What do I do now? Can you kind of speak a little bit on your transition then from the player to the coaching uh, side? Yeah, probably much, much like you guys, not much has fallen into my lap. I mean, not from Albuquerque to Mexico. I don't have any, you know, relationships at the highest levels or anything like that. And so I, my wife actually was the one who recommended to me when I had a couple of years, uh, you know, kind of to go on my career was like, man, you'd be, you should be a coach. And so I, I, I kind of started to, to think, well, heck, I'm already the guy who, you know, when I was playing in Goodson and, you know, I was dragging guys with me to the gym and I was, our, you know, I was kind of there early. I started the breakfast club. Um, you know, I bring Dwayne Anderson and we'd work on his jump shot, right? He became a BBL. A German all-star, things like that. Uh, I'd kind of teach him a shooting progression and do all these. I ended up being kind of like a player development coach while I was a player. Uh, and, and when I finished playing now, I, I wanted to be a coach at that point. My last season was in uh, Leb Gold in Mallorca in Spain. And I wanted to be, wanted to be a coach. I interviewed for a job with Paul Hewitt, who was at George Mason. Basically it was a get your coffee type job and I couldn't get it. So now here I am wanting to be a coach, but you can't coach if you don't have a team. Right. So I was desperate to figure out what was next. Um, Without, without kind of boring anybody too much on this path, I mean, I went to a coach's clinic for a guy named Gannon Baker because player development was super interesting to me. And uh, me and him hit it off. Uh, I started my own player development company actually in Dallas, Texas. I was training, you know, I mean, if you had a heartbeat and you wanted to make a basket, I was going to train you, you know, girls, boys, middle school, you know, eighth graders, high schoolers. And uh, then I got a call from Gannon that a group wanted to start a prep school and he wanted to know if I wanted to come to Florida and kind of help start that and jump that off. And that was really where I, I finally got to make that transition back. The biggest thing I missed during that seven month period was being a part of a team. And so now all of a sudden we've got, you know, multiple prep school teams and 
Uh, I went from uh, literally, uh, you know, we had we had 50 kids at this prep school. It was an IMG type model. They had a baseball program, one started a basketball program. And I coached three teams, each had a 30-game schedule. So now I'm coaching 90 basketball games. Now I'm running three practices a day. I had a six to eight and eight to 10, took a break, came back at noon, right? And that was like, bang, bang, bang. Um, the exciting thing about that too was with Gannon's Connections, we started an NBA pre-draft program and we got to work with guys that were preparing for the draft. So basically after my high school season got over where I got to do the X's and O's and have all the fun with that, now all of a sudden I get to segue into high-level player development with, uh, you know, I mean, we had about 15 or so guys get drafted and we had a lot of undrafted guys came through that were able to make their mark and continue to make their mark in the NBA. Coach, can you speak a little bit, and uh, I loved hearing what you were saying about kind of getting into the uh, player development side. Can you speak to, as a coach is making his way up the ladder, being able to pivot and adjust to different aspects of coaching that maybe the head coach needs you to be? So we all want to be the X and O wizard that draws up the game-winning backdoor play, you know, to beat UCLA or something. But what about when you get on a staff and they say, hey, I need you to be this guy. I need you to be this guy. Because um, it seems like you've done a great job at adjusting to where you're at. You know, you've been a head coach. You've been a player development guy. Um, you've been at probably everything in between. Now at Memphis, you're doing everything. But can you speak to that a little bit about coaches being able to adjust to what the staff needs? Well, I think the beauty of, of my journey um, and the thing that's kind of allowed me to be flexible is the fact that early on, um, it was basically just me and some RAs. And I mean, heck, in my first season at the prep school, Gannon was still living in West Virginia. His wife was coaching at Bluefield College. And so literally, I just kind of got dropped into the deep end. So I got coaching reps across the board. And I think that's what allowed me to kind of develop the ability to, to be a Swiss Army knife. Uh, that's also where I see the high level value in the G League, uh, because until you're a coach, you're not a coach. Right. And until you've worn different hats and been able to expand your role, you won't understand how to fit into a role when you need to be a round peg in a round hole. Right. And how to be able to add value outside of that uh, as your organization needs that. Right. And to me, I think that's the biggest thing is you always want to be an I got you guy, a solution based uh element within your program. And you want to be a guy that can answer questions before they're asked, right? So you anticipate problems and you put out brush fires so that your head coach can focus on the forest fires. And I think to me, that's the biggest thing. When you are approaching that, that role that you're in, you have to see it and understand it, know when to fit and just literally stay in that and know when that you, you might need to expand out of that and the appropriate way to expand out of that so that you're basically helping to bring people together rather than encroach on territories. I think I learned it going from prep school. I mean, literally one day, you guys, I was I was uh, laundering the uniforms at my house, unlocking the gym, rolling the balls out, sweeping the floors, filling up the water bottles. And the next day I'm on the team bus with Dwight Howard and James Harden. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> in, in, in training camp. And that's how quick it happened. Right. And so that was like an oh, aha moment. But for me, um, where I learned all these skills was under the people who I've worked for, which started with Matt Brazzi, who uh, are my second year in RGV. Uh, with the Vipers. So he had won a championship uh, working. He learned a lot from Nick Nurse. So he was Nick Nurse's assistant on his RGV Vipers championship squad. He was the head coach at RGV Vipers when he brought me in. And my our second year there, we actually had the highest offensive efficiency rating in the history of North American basketball. And in fact, uh, it would be number one, we, we were only beat by a team in the CBA. Joe Chi had a team 
in the in the CB, I think it was the Shanghai Sharks that had a higher offensive efficiency, or otherwise it'd be the highest like in history. And so I learned a ton from him. But what he did was he delegated well, and then he provided the freedom for us to work within that frame to build our own coaching voice and get those reps. And I think that you know that's the beauty of of, of my path is I actually haven't had the luxury to just get in a room with you know, or like the Spurs culture, right? You get in as an assistant video coordinator and heck, that'd be great. I mean, everybody's comfortable because we're going to win games, right? Because we, because <laughs> they always win, right? Yeah. So nobody's really worried about Greg Popovich getting fired and you can just sit back and, oh, what you need me to do, I got you, right? What you need me to do, I got you. You know, you, you never really have to kind of get on the, get on the actual grill, right? You know what I mean? With the flame lit underneath your rear. Um, and so that's, that's a great way for guys to develop because you can be a fly on the wall. But I was never afforded that. You know what I mean? I was with uh, Ryan Pannone in the Starbucks next door at the NBA Combine, you know, saying, hey, guys, right? Like, you know, we know a little bit about basketball. We're ready to work hard. You know, somebody give us an opportunity. You know, like yeah. I was with him the whole way. Like our whole – our path, I mean, he knows my Starbucks order better than me. And I think <laughs> the thing about that is, is that, you know, our whole, whole feeling was there was nobody to toot our horn, Right. Like, you know, it, it wasn't. And sometimes if nobody's tooting your horn, there's no music, right? So you got to figure out how to like strike up the music yourself, right? Whether that's, you know, showing your work ethic, whether that's finding different ways to get in front of the right audience to prove that you can prove your worth. And then once you get in the room, right, if you are truly prepared to be there, it will show. And if you're not ready to be in those high level rooms, you will absolutely know. And you'll have to go back and continue to work on your craft. Although we all have to continue to expand our craft daily. A follow-up to that, um, you talk about developing your craft and these being in a high-level room with high-level coaches. Um, you've mentioned a couple, Steve Donahue, um, Igor, I always butcher the last name, Kokoskov. Kokoskov, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah yes. exactly. <laughs> these guys are some of the elite basketball minds um, that we have um, throughout the whole world. And you've been in rooms with them. Uh, I'm interested... Uh, what they're like as far as developing offensive philosophy around the team that they have. So my first, the first, you know, staff that I got in the room with was like Kevin McHale. Right. And in that room, he also had Chris Finch, who's an elite offensive mind who's with the New Orleans Pelicans. He actually went to Denver, right. When Malone was installing a lot of the stuff that they're doing with Jokic now, before he moved to New Orleans, where he started doing the stuff with Anthony Davis and Boogie Cousins, how they work together, really creative offensive mind. Right. So that's one Matt Brazzi, who spent all this time around Nick nurse. That's two. Uh, Mike D'Antoni, obviously to have the opportunity to learn the D'Antoni offense from D'Antoni. I mean, we know the iteration that we saw uh, with small ball is different than what we saw with the seven, seven seconds or less Steve Nash crew, but nonetheless, I mean, the skeleton of the majority of NBA offenses are going to stem from that. And then, you know, Jay Trianu, uh, who I got to spend some time with when I was in uh, in Northern Arizona, right, because he took over for Earl Watson, right? Jay, a creative offensive mind, another guy, right, who, who's done a, a lot of great things, whether it's in, in Canada, whether it's with, uh, uh, with Terry Stotts in Portland or, you know, all across the board and now with James Borrego in Charlotte. And then Igor, the biggest thing that you realize around these guys is that the game of basketball is it's like a chess match, right? It's literally a chess match and you have to try to think two and three steps ahead of your opponent. The move right in front of you oftentimes is not the right move, right? That's checkers, right? Checkers. You can only make the play right in front of you, but chess, you've got to find ways to move these guys around the board to take advantage of their strengths, to take advantage of their different, 
the, the gravity that they provide on the court, right? The defensive gravity, gravity that they have to put your guys in the best position to succeed. And I think that's the biggest thing I respect about them is you have to adhere those philosophies to your personnel, right? You don't fit your personnel to your system. You fit your system to your personnel. A great example of that is going to be you watch a Rick Carlisle team from this year versus a Rick Carlisle team from just three years ago. You might not recognize them. Or Eric Spolster, who's another great, great adjuster, is, I mean, the stuff that he was running with LeBron James and Dwayne Wade is far different than what he was running with that next iteration of his team in those in-between years. And to see how they changed even from when they traded Hassan Whiteside and brought in Bam full-time at the big man position, right, it's astonishing because to be able to adjust and win is one of the most difficult things to do. And as a coach, it's one of the most uncomfortable things to, to, to do because – well, what we did before one, right? But if we don't see what's around the curve and make our adjustments now, that's the quickest way to get the rider truck outside of your front door. You know what I mean? And now you got to load up and you got to move to another city. So the, the, the best coaches are truly able to adjust on the fly. And that's what I respect about them is they play that chess match based on their roster, right? And they understand that from year to year or even from game to game, they're going to have to be on the cutting edge of that in order to fully take advantage of the defense and put their team uh, in the best uh, position to win. Uh, same goes for the defensive side of the basketball as well is understanding, you know, how the offense is going to adjust and, and making sure that, I mean, your checkdowns, you've got to be three and four adjustments deep, right, on your emergency backup plans. What are you doing player development-wise defensively as well? I mean, everyone will go on YouTube and see all the workouts that they're doing offensively, but I would imagine you're also developing these guys defensively uh, in one-on-one -on -one sessions or small groups. Great, great question, right? The carrot is the offense, right? Like that's kind of, that's the carrot, right? So what I like to do in terms of how to implement defense into player development is add a defensive uh, segment that closes with offense. It sounds funny, but we might work on a closeout, uh, a dribble handoff under, back into a step up. We go over, we veer back into a crack back. And now after we do all that stuff, whether they kill the drill, right? What I love is a respace element. And now we're going to hit you with two or three offensive things, right? So you earn the offense, right? By going through the defense, if that makes sense. No, yeah, that's And smart. there's ways to do it in a low impactful way. There's ways to do it, right? Being conscious of things like, you know, you know, uh, load management, right? Like it's not just, Hey, close out one-on-one -on -one, like that. Rah, 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 rah. And like working harder is not always working smarter. Cause you know, I, I ask everybody all the time, Hey, you guys know what the Laffer curve is or the law of diminishing returns. I'm like, it gets to a point where your next rep, you get worse no matter what. Right. You know, things like fatigue load, they set in and now you get sloppy, higher risk injury. Right. So what we like to do is we like, you have a controlled element, maybe we're working on veer backs, right? On pick and roll situations, we can't get back square. Maybe work on blowing up DHOs, blow up, get square, boom, you did your work. Now let's get into an offensive element immediately, right? So in a 45-minute span, right, at least 10 of those minutes should be worked on some form of defense. And then you always dangle that carrot at the end, right? Because if it's all defense and it's only defense in a player development session, which is not a practice, man, we're not talking about practice, right? it's the quickest way to like lose these guys. They don't want to come back to your sessions. You know what I mean? Cause everybody wants to work on offense. Like Patrick already said here. Right. So I think it's important. You dangle it and you work it in and you layer it because basically you're essentially like tricking, tricking them into, uh, to doing what you want, you know, more or less mind games. <laughs> <laughs> kind of follow up on that coach. You've worked with some of the most elite athletes we have in the game. 
what is it that you do specifically, whether it's just your personality or the way you set up workouts, that you're able to push high-level athletes beyond their comfort zone? You know, I, I think the biggest thing is what it comes down to is value, right? Now, Panone, on your last one, you talked about adding value from a coaching perspective, right, to help you kind of move up, right? And I, I'm a big, I'm a giver, right? To me, it's like you give, give, give. And like Kevin Eastman told me one time, man, give for a full year before you ask anything in return, right? Well, it's all about adding value as a player development specialist, coach, whatever, or just as a coach in general. If you add value to that player, they're going to crave that, right? Because that value is going to allow them to be successful. It's going to allow them to uh, play better. It's going to allow them to, you know, uh, sign that contract extension, right? So when you're working with a guy like Devin Booker, right, if you can't add value, he has no use for that relationship, right? And so to me, you, you build trust, you have to connect, you have to really understand these guys on a human level, right? And then you have to add value, right? That value might be, we did a lot of work with Booker on changing his shot selection priorities, right? Changing those, but tweaking them in a way that was in alignment with his game, right? And then introducing new concepts that can help him be even more efficient. So, you know, he was a high volume mid-range guy, but not, not, the, not, not what I call paint poles, right? Which are on, like we see Kawhi Leonard shoot a lot of paint poles. That's my terminology for you. When you get into the paint and you actually shoot a jumper, it's not a floater, it's an actual jump shot. It's an on-balance jump shot in the paint closer to the basket, right? So what we talked with Book about was if we want to change your shot location priorities, right, what teams are doing now, if they're going to go drop coverage, they're trying to bait you into the mid-range. We know this, right? And unless you can shoot it at 50% or more, like there's no discussion, like it's not a great shot, we can find a better shot. So now it's like, well, you can't just tell a guy that and not give them a solution to the issue, right? So a couple of solutions we worked on. One, uh, he's an over guy. He's a hot guy, right? Nobody's going under his ball screens. Easy sit behind shot, right? That's, that's Papa shot. So what we do is we pull the level of the screen out. We change the angle. We know that he's going to be an over guy, right? And now we're working on his off the dribble pull up three point shots. Jason Chatham has significantly changed his shot profile this season, right? To where now I saw a statistic that he might be uh, the best three point shooter in unassisted three point shots in the league. Right. And what he's doing and you see heavily is he's patient at the first level. Guy goes over the screen, wedges him out, and he's going to pull that three point shot before he gets inside to the intermediate area. Well, now, once you get ushered into the intermediate area, it's like, what's the next solution? Because the big man's trying to play the cat mouse game and bait you. Right. So with Devin Booker, we worked on several things that you can tell Tatum's worked on as well. But we worked on attacking kill boxes which was spots on the floor where we knew if he got to his spot, he could get on balance and he can get a shot attempt off. Right. And so our kill boxes were in the paint. Everything was in the paint. That was the goal. It was elbow, elbow, but not elbow extended. It's elbow and in. Right. So try to back them up to the point where you get below that free throw line. They're making a decision, right? The big is going to play the cat and mouse, try to bait the intermediate. If he commits to you, Devin Booker, elite passer, we work a lot on passing. But if you get to a specific spot on the floor and you can get on balance and pull it up, shoot it. 53% was what he shot uh, on paint pulls off the bounce. That is officially an efficient shot, right? Because I, my marker is 50%. Because So if you can shoot 33% from three, that's the same as 50% from two, right? So that's kind of our, that's our target point. The other thing is, Ability to draw fouls, right? Drawing fouls, one thing I learned from, from, from James Harden is it's actually an art and a science, and you have to actually practice it to perfect it, right? He doesn't randomly go in here and scoop hands. It's all purposeful. 
He understands he knows when to scoop on the ball. He knows when to scoop off the ball. He knows when the weak side help is coming, bluffs, and the guys are stunting in here. Boom, he's going to hook your hand. Foul. Right? Everybody wants to complain. It's a foul. He understands body trajectory, and I know this because he used to beat the crap out of me when I was playing defense on him, right? Like in drills. And I'm like, man, I'm just playing defense in drills, and he's over here. I feel like he's offensive fouling me, but he's, he's just understanding how to catch me in compromised positions to take advantage of poor body position on my part. Right. So like if a guy drives by you to the left, your immediate uh, your immediate reaction as a, as a defender, right, is you've got to drop open up to try to get back square. What you tend to do is try to reroute that guy with your inside hand. Right. And you're out here. You're trying to get back square. Well, as you try to reroute the guy with the inside hand, James understands that he's going to let you feel comfortable. Now, your inside hands here as he's driving. And now as he comes up on the gather, he's scooping your inside hand. It's a foul. Right. But he practices that. Right. Yeah. The other things that he practices are things like Euro step. Obviously, we know he's great at the Euro step. He's almost perfected that move completely. But Euro step passing. Right. So now he's really like a quarterback and he's envisioning all these different things. And it's there, it's not a coincidence that he can do them. So we work with Book on his ability to understand and draw fouls. Right. Even th- something I learned from Chris Paul, we call a green light situation. Right. In the NBA, what they started doing was guys were sweeping through and it was not a natural shooting motion. Right. So now you go here and, and the other guy fouled you, but we're going to take it out on the side, not a natural shooting motion. Well, once you're in the bonus, that changes. Chris Paul is one of the best in the NBA. He knows the bonus situation. He also understands defense and pick and roll defense in particular. So a very generalized element is when you have a pick and roll coming right on the call, whoever the guy on the ball has to usher you into the coverage. That usually intend, it involves some type of physicality, right? So our terminology is on the call, jam the ball, right? Whether you're going to ice it or whatever, right? You're going to send it down. You're still going to get into the body because you've got to reroute him and you've got to usher him into the coverage, right? If you're going to send him to the screen, you're still going to get into the body, right? Yeah. And when you do that, that initial physical element right now in a green light situation, if we're in the bonus, it doesn't matter if it's shooting motion or not. And you just sweep through and you take the foul and Chris Paul goes to the free throw line and, you know, somebody's over there complaining, to the ref, but it's a foul and it's playing the chess game. So now if you think if you can get one of those a game, that's extra two free free throws right now, if you can draw an extra foul on a, some sort of a scoop situation, right? Right. And if you're in, entering the LDB, that's going to be two shots in the NBA. So now you're looking at four free throws for a dude who shoots 90%, right? You're going to be getting darn near four points out of that before you even started the game. Right. And that's just playing the chess match. So right. to me, those things, right, and be able to add that ability, uh, that value is what those guys like. So we get to enter next foul bonus situation. I just yelled, book green light. He knows green light. Okay, it's a good reminder. Next time I'm in a situation, they get hit, boom, we take it, we go to the free throw line. Staying on, yeah, adding value and their skill development. I guess to focus on the pick and roll, what are you doing for their decision-making? How are you training their decision-making? What is like the reads you're encouraging as is it reading, whether it's a drop coverage and ice coverage or where the third help, second help's coming from, what are you trying to work with these guys and their decision-making and improving how they operate out of pick and rolls? No, I mean, that's a great question. I think that the biggest thing, it really all goes to how you are, incorporating your player development with what you guys are trying to do with what the solutions are on the floor. And so I'm big on what I call the four stages of habit building. Right. And so the first stage is you're unconsciously unskilled. Basically you don't know what you don't know. Right. And then 
once you realize and you, you've come to the, the, to the understanding there's something I got to work on, right? You're consciously unskilled. You know, you've got to improve. Then you're consciously working. But what you're working towards is what I call being unconsciously skilled. All right. And when you're unconsciously skilled, you don't think you just react. And so to me, the decision-making element of the game is perhaps the most important. So the way we layer that in and we do that here, that this is where we do it here in Memphis as well. And, and this is where the way I've kind of done it all the way along, learned the, 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 the beginnings of it from Gannon Baker, uh, learned more about it from, from Matt, Matt Brazi, and we kind of took it to the next level. And now some of this stuff is, is, is more uh, recent and unique, right, is we teach it, script it, read it, play it. The game of basketball, okay, is really separated into skills and concepts when you're looking at player development, right? So building skills means we've got to become a better ball handler. We've got to become a better shooter. We've got to become a better passer with both hands, right? But the concepts is when to use that specific tool, right? When to, when to make that – a lot of times, oftentimes, the game comes down to just decision-making in and of itself. Sometimes that decision is when to catch the ball and just pass it. Sometimes it's when not to shoot it is just as important as when to shoot it. Right. And so what we do is uh, in, in all of our several, we'll take a coverage and we're going to break it down read by read. Right. That's going to be your teach it element. And then we're going to script it. Right. And what we do when we script it is the guys at some point in time, if you only script drills, they're going to hit autopilot. And if you allow your players to reach that autopilot, you're no longer activating the part of the brain that is actually making the decision. Right. They might be going hard full speed, but they don't have to make a decision because they know the defense is going to do that. I'm going to make that pass. Tags in, hit the shake. Right. Nails in, make the advance pass. Bigs back, hit the pocket pass. Right. It's not until you have two or three different reads in, you've taught them when and how to use the right solution. And then you randomize what you do that you force them to learn and you force them to actually make the correct decision. Right. So basically, we introduce the concept. We work on it read by read. And then when we get to the point where, we've, where we're reading it, we've got two or three different options and now you've got to make the correct decision. The general philosophy on that too has to be bones over cones, right? Bodies are what force the decisions in the games. And so the more we can have bodies force decisions in practice, the better. Now we don't all have, you know, 800, you know, interns and video guys running around and all that type of stuff, right? But as coaches, it's great to get out there and we've got to be creative with what we do. Ideally, the game we always know is going to be a two and three man game, right? It's a two man game. And if you enter the third defender into the equation, that's how you're going to activate the blender, right? You're going to get the advantage. And now it's just about keeping the advantage of finding that shot solution down the road, right? So to me, what we like to try to do is a randomize everything we do, all right, after we've implemented and teaching it and taught it, because we have to avoid autopilot. Autopilot doesn't help a guy become a better decision maker. Right. And if you think about it, when you have the ball in your hands, I don't care what position you are, you are exactly like a quarterback in football. When a quarterback in football drops back into the pocket, right, it's always going to be first receiver, second receiver, third receiver, check down, right? So it's got to be bang, bang, bang. Right. And so for us, we try to teach it in a way that these guys are going to understand at all times exactly what the defense is going to be doing. Because what I found is the guys who are truly great at making these reads, right? When you get around a Chris Paul, when you get around to James Harden, you're up close and you see it. They understand the rotations of the defense so well, right? So they're making – they're not predetermining what they're going to do. They're not trying to impose their will on the game, right? They are actually reading the defense. Now they know this guy should go. If I do this, this guy should help. Oh, he didn't help. They know that's the solution. 
And the difference, people always say this, right? Oh man, like the best part about freshmen is they become sophomores or, you know, they, you know, he hit the rookie wall and now, you know, he's a sophomore and, and he's so much better. Or people talk about like Tyler Hero. What's so different about Tyler Hero now versus eight months ago? There can't be that much different about him. So why couldn't he make all these reads at Kentucky that he's doing now, right? It's about how you teach it and how you implement it and how you do it daily. So it becomes part of his DNA, right? And the other way I look at it is the more we can introduce bodies into our player development, right? And have these decisions be randomized to avoid autopilot. We can curve that learning curve, right? We can shorten that learning curve before these guys and recognizing those situations and scenarios, right? And so to me, the biggest element there is a guy who has used 5,000 pick and rolls is going to be better than a guy who's used 500, right? Just organically because he's made the mistakes in all these different stars. Now he's seen it all, right? Tom Brady drops back. He sees a certain coverage. He already knows what's, what his options are, right? So the chances of making the right decision are extremely high, right? Somebody who's young, who's a neophyte to the situation, never been there, never done that, right? You're almost like, well, he, we can just roll him out there and give him minutes and he can learn on the fly. But what if we can recreate the game environment and the game scenario and now all of a sudden we can get this guy up to using 5,000 pick and rolls because we've done it in practice. But it's 5,000 randomized situations because the game is random, yep. right? Well, we'd love to do, and this we also do this on shooting drills. Hey, man, and of course, you've got to water your plants. That's our big, that was Igor's big term. You've got to water your plants, right? Just repetition. If I want to be a good shooter, I just got to shoot, shoot, shoot. But the game is never going to let you stand there and just hit pop a shot. You know what I mean? The game breaks your rhythm because if I shoot, now I got to go get back on defense. Now I've got to do three or four other things before I get back onto the offensive side. So a lot of the player development that I try to do and try to implement is designed to break your rhythm, right? We all talk about, we all have the different variations of 100 shot drill and I've got like 20 different variations, right? But like the Duncan Robinson, you know, 100, right? That's going to, they're all five shot sequences, five different shots on a set. And then you reset because the game's not going to allow you to just go DHO, sit behind shot. Okay. Walk back. DHO, sit behind shot, walk back. That's not how it works. So if you want to be a great game shooter too, you have to be able to shoot when your rhythm is broken. It's easy to shoot when you're comfortable. It's the same concept when we're working on decision-making. So I'm big on the decision-making element and I'm big on randomizing it. And then eventually you get to the point where, whether they're coaches, most likely, right? Grad assistants, whatever they are, right? These guys are out there practically playing three on three and your players love it. The other thing that we do, uh, and a lot of people have seen this is, right, you run a three-man deal and you have defense and you make the read and now every two other guys get a shot, right? We've all seen that. But to me, that doesn't take great advantage of that time. If I've got 15 minutes, how many decisions can we fit into 15 minutes? So a lot of the drill work that we do will be out of a concept I call three, two, one. So it's a three-on-three -three game, right? And let's just say we hit the big man, right? That's the solution. I don't know. It's a random solution. Might not be the right solution, but we hit the big man. He shoots, he's off. We immediately re-space out, and now we've got a two-on-two -two game. Guard, drive, and kick. Another scenario to read that's totally randomized, right? Maybe you drive middle, right? Maybe the guy's at the nail, nail commits you kick out. Maybe he stunts it, so you keep it and go for the finish. Maybe you take your guy to the baseline, and we got to drift to the corner to occupy the corner, Right. So now we get another shot. So let's say that we let's say baseline drive, baseline drip. Well, now we relocate back behind the three-point line, and we've got four spots on the court that are that are uh, signified. And you get to one of your spots because uh, that's another concept I'll touch on in a minute. But you get to that spot, and now we play closeout one-on-one. -on -one. 
with a five second count. Well, what it really is, is not close on what's high value one on one. Find a high value shot in five seconds. All you need to do is force a defender to take one step towards you. A mini closeout is still a closeout. And the big keys at the NBA level, right, are to make quick decisions once two go to the ball, right, and read the closeout before the catch. So you've got to know it's short close, long close, right, left, right. And now what you've got to do is you've got to find a way to create that high value shot. So I'll count down from five, four, three. Guys love it, right? Because now they're playing one on one. And now they're, 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 their mind is activated. I got to read, is he on me? Do I drive by him? Do I shoot the shot? And it'll be ugly. There'll be times they get in a dance game, ISO, eh, you know what I mean? There'll be times where they shoot it versus a long closeout. But the more times they see the scenario, right, the better. It's, but you, can't, you have to randomize it, right, because the game is ugly. And the only way to, to fight through that mud to get to the beauty, beautiful part of it, right, is to get through those, those goof-ups, yeah. Right. Because those goofs, goof ups are all, are all part of it. And, and uh, you talk about, you know, reshaping the floor, which is like a soccer concept. Right. Soccer, you've got to keep your shape. Right. And you're going to send balls into spaces and you understand that guys are going to run onto balls. Right. Well, it's the same thing in, in basketball. Right. After you close space, which there's only three reasons you should close space. You're a cutter. You're a roller. Right. Or you're a penetrator with the ball. But after you close space, the more bodies inside the three-point line, the more congested everything is. The less clear the read is, the easier it is for one guy to guard two. So if you close space, you've got to open space, right? So what we try to do in all of our drills is incorporate just that, that extra little mental element of re-spacing, right? To reshape the floor, to fill our spots. So we have our emergency checkdowns, our corners get filled, our wide slots get filled. It's going to allow us to understand where our guys are going to be in case of times where we have emergency and we know that somebody's going to be able to be there in that corner to bail you out when you need to make that pass. Coach, that was fantastic. <laughs> it's like, it's like uh, I mean, you guys were talking about wedding crashes at the last one, right? Yeah. What about old school? It's like recent research has shown that empirical evidence for the globalization of <laughs> yeah. is limited. And as a corollary, the market for technology yeah. is shrinking. <laughs> I just blacked out. What happened? Yeah, yeah, what happened? What happened? That's the lead debate. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> uh, no, that was that was fantastic. I was trying to take notes, and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to go back and re-listen to this, and uh, and we'll post it. But that was um, that was great listening to. I think all of us being coaches, you, you know, the college, MBA, professional, European level, gosh, decision making is just so important, and trying to figure out how to rep that in drills. You know, like we always talk about, you know, we throw up great sets all the time on slapping glass and, and it's great to watch. But really, the, the best teams are the ones that can play within the set, make the read, find the advantage, you know, um, whatever it is. And so loved hearing you talk uh, about that. How about coming from the NBA back now to Memphis, uh, high major division one level? Obviously, you guys have fantastic players, but are the drills and the reads and the 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 level of how you were teaching, uh, say, Devin Booker, is it the same thing? These guys are just obviously not as repped, or have you changed it a little bit to the college game? I think that's a, a great question. Um, and I think uh, as coaches, I mean, it's just funny. It doesn't matter where you go, right? Like there's an element where – you know, you always think, man, if we had that player in the other locker room, man, that guy would be the answer, right? You know what I mean? And and as players, the, a lot of times, too, at the professional level, I think, man, if only I went to that team, you know what I mean? It'd be so much better. And it's like, you know, we, we, we fail to understand that, um, you know, sometimes when 
things aren't going the way you like, right. As a teacher, right. You, you can't walk into to, to fourth year college Spanish, you know what I mean? And you know, it's your, you have never, you didn't take Spanish one one or one Oh two. Right. And then wonder, man, God dang, this guy can't speak Spanish. You know what I mean? Like your responsibility as a teacher is to teach him. Right. And that's why you start with the foundation. You build your way up. But at the end of the day, it's, it's never about like, they can't do it. We got to abandon it. It's always about how can we re-understand the best way to provide the information in a, in a, a way that's retainable and it's retainable for different guys in different ways. Right. That's why you've got to make sure you dot the I's and cross the T's, whether it's extra film sessions, whether it's going to, to do various things with them off the court that allows you to get through and, and connect with them at the level where now they can zone everything out. Right. And they can, they can lock in and listen. And I think that that's like a huge element that we, that we don't, quite get right like let's not underestimate what they're capable of and you see it a lot um just in basketball in general right like can you run two plays coming out of a timeout right boy people always say all the time man man g league man like you know so-and-so man if he left our team our team hotel for a 10 minute walk he'd get lost man we can't run two plays out of a timeout but don't don't underestimate him it's how you learn and how you teach it so when i was the head coach in northern arizona Every we scripted the we scripted the the game every play uh, every timeout we ran two plays coming out of a timeout and I got that from Matt Brazi Igor Kokoshkov's a two play at a timeout guy right now if your guys are having trouble with that you figure out well why are they having trouble with that right so maybe your first play ATO right is going to be your specialized wrinkle second play is going to be a dial up on demand that these guys should be able to run drop of a hat right something that's more a part of your main menu not your just specialized menu um, but in the same sense. Right. You talk about things like two for one. Right. We call a bingo situation, which is your two for ones should, you know, can be scripted. If you take possession of the ball. Right. And you, you've got, you know, you say you take possession at 42 on the clock. Right. And, you know, you want to shoot by 33, usually right. Latest by 30. Right. You should be able to have what you call something that's dialed up. We, we called it bingo. First learned it from from again, Matt Brazi, who's I mean, I, there's no doubt to me he's going to be a head coach in the NBA. I mean, you know, sooner rather than later. But that day earlier at our shoot around, right, it'd be like, all right, bingo tonight, we're going to run Oklahoma, right? So our Oklahoma small or whatever it is. So the guys who are on the floor, they're going to understand that. And then, well, how do you teach that? Well, you and your five on O, you run set down back. Well, when you randomly start counting from 41, 40, 39, right, that indicates these guys, oh, this is into quarter, let's get organized. And they should know what to call, right? And then you go through it and then you correct it. And you say, well, here's the deal. Let's start the action by 39. Let's set the screen by 36. Let's shoot the shot by 33. When you break it down like that, it sounds simple. So now when the guy here is 39, he goes, man, okay, I got to run up. We're going to start the action. That takes about three seconds to get up to set your screen, right? So now I'm setting it at 36. So now hopefully between that point and the next three seconds, whatever shot we're taking, we usually try to create, you know, a, a nice quick hitter catch and shoot three, right? Then we get it off. It's, it's more than just, and, and, it, there's still always value in the two for one. So even if you don't have it scripted, you can tell in the NBA, right? Like a guy knows when to push it, they'll get a quick shot, but why not try to get a good shot? Mm-hmm. Right. If you can just yell bingo, bingo, and everybody's on the same page and we run a play and we know it's a specialized quick hitter, we can do it. Right. And so to me, it's, it's, again, it's how you teach it. You know, little things like nuanced stuff like bingo two for one situations are great to do in five on O. Right. But then other things that you want to layer into it, whether it's, two timeouts out of a, out of a deal, come out of a water break, right. And pull two groups, two groups right away. And it's a timeout. Give them two plays, go right into live play for like 
you know, two minutes. It's a two minute game, right? But you hit them at a randomized element. When their guard is down, they never know when it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Same thing with special situations. Come out of a come out of a water break. That's what we did in, in Northern Arizona all the time, right? And we'd have our, our special situation for the day. Now, what a lot of teams do is, okay, it's side out of bounds, you know, sub three second, need a catch and shoot three. So they'll go, they'll break it down, they'll come together, right? They've got it, they'll run it, and then they'll switch, and they'll do the same scenario. That doesn't have the same impact, right? Because now the other guys know what to expect. Does you see what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. So we would do one scenario, right? Your offense this time, your defense this time, and now we just go on with the rest of our practice into the next drill. Come out of the next water break, it's a different scenario. Offense, defense is flipped, but it's an entirely different scenario. So you can't anticipate and guess what's going to happen, right, to keep everybody on their toes force them to think and actually recreate that situation. Because again, when it comes to learning, right, to avoid autopilot, you have to recreate situations that are totally randomized, right? So you can imprint on their DNA that they're going to have to make a decision based on something that perhaps they haven't seen, right? And they can't expect. When you can expect it, you can have your solution prepared, right? When you can't expect it, then it makes it much more game-like. Yep. Coach, going back to the the bingo situation, are you defining to your guys like what the the shot selection or what shot you know you you would want if they blow up your your quick hitter? Is it you know then it's like okay that they kind of stopped our two for one. Let's then pull it back out or let's try to hunt for a good shot and not just let's panic. You know, pass to the next guy. He tries to jack up a shot just to keep the two for one. What are you kind of defining with shot selection in the bingo? Yeah, it's funny because old school coaches will say, you know, um, you know, one one good shot's better than two bad shots, but mathematically that's incorrect. Two bad shots are actually greater than one than one good shot, right? And it just it, it, mm-hmm. it's our it's proven. It's like one plus one equals two. We can't argue that, right? So the reality of it is, in a bingo situation, right? If we can't get our shot up, that's why we use thirty three as our as our keynote, and we have a three second cush after that, right? Well, a little cushion. Right. Where if we can't get the shot off of our quick hitter in a bingo situation, our guy who has the ball knows he's got three seconds to get a shot off. And you've got to get the shot off because basically 30 is the end of the shot clock for us in that scenario. Mathematically, we want to get that shot off because the value of that extra possession is greater than the value of the current possession. If that makes sense. Yeah. So we're incentivized at all times to get the shot off. Now, it might not go as planned, but that's why we script it and work on it. And what we found in RGV in Northern Arizona all the way through was that by scripting it and working on it, the guys will improve at it and the value or excuse me, the, the quality of the shot you'll get in those scenarios will organically and inherently improve as well. Right. So you're going to see less, you know, trashy push and push and pull stuff. You know what I mean? Um, and the other thing as well, uh, when you look at that is on the flip side, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at guys who you've lost the two for one. Right. You gain possession of the ball at, let's say, 39 or 38. Right. That's difficult now to push and get organized and do something that becomes if you get it at 38, that's probably more like Donovan Mitchell or, you know, Murray or whatever push to score. You still want the shot by 30 if you can get it. Right. But if for whatever reason you don't get it, you miss out on the two for one. Right. You actually don't want to drain the clock against yourself. Right. You actually want to leave about 10 seconds on the opponent's clock. Why would you want to do that? Well, for the, for the opponent, I mean, just you know, less time for them to get into something. Well, no, 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 because I could drain the clock further and they could have five seconds. Right. When a team is up against the clock, what do they tend to do? 
go fast. Right. Right. Yeah. So if they take possession with five or six seconds left and you let, and I mean, okay, she was great at it. Actually Houston implemented this strategy as well. You throw the ball into Russell Westbrook and now he's a one man fast break. Yeah. And it's just because he feels the pressure of the clock that he's going to turn that possession into a transition possession. So defensively, it becomes a transition element to you. If there's 10 or 12 on the clock when you take the shot, what are they going to do? Pull it out, set up a yeah. high on They want to hold for the last so. shot now. Yeah. yeah. So now yeah. you get your defense back and set, right? So think about that. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? We always want yeah. to attack a defense in transition. We know the longer that we have the ball, our offensive efficiency rating is going to go down, right? And then we get our worst shots at the end of the clock. Well, if, if we leave enough time on for them that they say the value of the possession we have to have, we need last shot now, that it becomes a walk-up possession, now your defensive set. If you leave five seconds, six seconds on the clock when the ball goes through, yeah, they're they going. get it in quickly, they're pushing it down your throat, your defense isn't set. Yeah. Right? So oh, there's different ways great. to look at it. It goes back to the whole chess match. I do like that, Coach, um, the end of the shot clock stuff. I'm assuming – a little bit of that is also time and score, you know, first half or second half, depending on where you guys are at, you know, if you're up or down last second, or is that going to stay the same basically even in the second half? It's a great question, right? Obviously like here we're working in halves, but first three quarters, right? If you can, if you can win the two for one first three quarters, think about that. You're going to have three extra possessions in the game. Right. And if you think about how close all these games are coming down to this, the value of that is significant, right? If you can be organized and you can execute and all these, there are other variables. For but sure. the value of winning the two for one first three quarters is unequivocal, right? Absolutely. The big question mark becomes end of game two for ones. And this is where you start to see situations. And also end of game two for ones, you can work a little bit below 30 because timeout advanced situations, right? Right. But it's interesting to me as I'm watching these games, I always try to think about it from a coach's perspective, right? Like if you are up one, right, with the ball opportunity for two for one in the fourth quarter, up one, are you taking that two for one, right? If it's tied to me, no brainer, two for one. If you're up one, right. And you get a two at the very least, right. They can only, they can only tie, right. Theoretically. And you left enough time that you can play out the possession. Right. And I didn't, you know, now we talk about foul up three, which I'm a foul up three guy all the time, but you know, you can talk about whether you're going to do that or not, but you always know no matter what, we're going to get the ball back and we can time out advance we're going to have a chance, right? Mm -hmm. The hard ones are um, our tie ball game. You know what I mean? That you yeah. see some teams drift. Or up two, you see some teams drift, right? But then if you're up two and you don't take the two-for-one opportunity and they come back, now they can win the game with the last possession. Right. So now you've got another variable, which is defensive breakdown. And if you're only up two, right, it's not a up three foul situation where you can actually protect the lead and never let them attempt a shot at the basket that's going to tie or win the game. So now there's, there's, there's just other variables that are in place, right? So, again, these are the decisions, though, that as a coach, right, you should always be evaluating, make the decision now. Like right now, I don't have a game tomorrow. Right? I don't have a, we don't have a game for months, right? So – these are the scenarios that I like to throw off, you know, pennies played, like we kind of toss them back and forth so that we made the decision before we're under the, right. under the pressure of the, of the timeout. Right. And I think that's a huge element. Coach, how about right now, since you got time to, to talk about end of game strategy, uh, some of the math coming out and analytics on fouling when you're up two, 
Have you guys talked yeah. about that scenario? That's kind of a newer look at either the fouling up three obviously has been well studied. How about that? Have you talked about that at all? Yeah, no, I mean, that was, I always had, and I, I first got introduced to that in, um, in Spain, you know what I mean? Like, I remember I was while I'm watching the game and like Pablo Prigioni is like guarding somebody. And then like, you know, they're up two and he fouls to get the ball back. I'm like, I was like, wait a minute. He, he clearly did it intentionally. You know, honestly, that's a debate that, that for me, I've, I've been having, you know, for, for years and years, right. Is the thought behind that, right. To foul and get the ball back to potentially have a tie game, but have the ball at the end of the game. And I think that when it comes down to whether it makes sense or doesn't make sense, I think that as coaches, we need to look and, and really dive into the scenarios where that has happened in Spain specifically. That's a big country where that is a very popular strategy, right? right. And the reason I say that is because their last possessions are rarely going to be uh, 10 eyeballs to the ball. You know what I mean? They're really going to yeah. be stagnant, just sit back and watch, right? Isolation possessions, right? They're going to stay true to what they do in quarters one through three, right? Late in the game, they're going to have, you know, they're going to, they're going to understand, right? We're going to start this play at 10 or 11 seconds, right? We still want to get the last shot, but they're going to, it's going to be bang, 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 something, something, something to the real something to the shot, as opposed to, all right, just to ensure that we get the very last shot, you know, you guys kind of, you go over this spot, you go over there. Uh, yeah, no, I'm going to have a, I'll have a hot dog, uh, <laughs> extra mustard, uh, uh, chicken fingers for my guy in the other corner. You know what I mean? Yeah. And now you just become a spectator yeah. because now you got guys loading into gaps. And unfortunately, I think what the most oftentimes the guy with the ball doesn't realize is that he should try to be a creator for the, for somebody else to get the shot. But too often that's not what happens. Right. Right. So I think diving into doing a case study on those scenarios in Spain and really locking in and seeing what they're doing in those scenarios could be advantageous to NBA coaches. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think um, Pat, maybe we'll try to get um, Ken Pomeroy on here, the analytics guy. Um, but well, but in, in college, man, I got beef with my guy with my guy, Ken Palm, because, um, <laughs> you know, there's there's people out here saying, like, don't foul up three in college. But then I look at the sample size and it's like you know, very small sample size, you know, yeah. and then all the people who tell me, man, like we should have just guarded it out because we couldn't rebound at the free throw line. Like you couldn't rebound at the free throw line. And that's the reason why the strategy is flawed. Right. That's no flaw in the strategy that's flaw in your execution. Right. Right. And yeah. it's like, if your guys can't rebound on the free throw line, you might want to get new players. Otherwise you're going to probably be, you know, <laughs> selling your house anyways. You know what I mean? So. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, coach, this has been, this has been great. Uh, you know, as we're kind of starting to uh, wind down, I wanted to pivot just a little bit. And Pat, I, I know maybe we yeah. have a, another question or two as we pivot, but um, for for you, we've talked a lot about you've worked with great players and some unbelievable coaches and um, so much great stuff that you have going on. But what are maybe what's the other side of the coin? What are some more difficult things that you have to deal with as a coach now that maybe you could shed light on um, that people don't see, you know, on Twitter or, or the good stuff? Yeah, no, I think, you know, uh, I mean, number one that stands out, it's always work life balance, right? Like I have a wife who I've been married to for, you know, 11 years now, and I've got two, two small girls, right? And so to me, you have to have the ability to understand when to turn it off right. And how to be totally present with them. I think that that's a huge element. Um, and I think what I, what I've learned along the way to me is 
just just from coming from the pro side, there's so many games, right? You're always on to the next, on to the next. I, I, I feel like I have at least at this point mastered the opportunity to like leave the losses behind and move on, right? Like when I go home, I'm not going to take a loss home with me. I, I'm not going to take a loss to my pillow. I'm not going to take a loss to bath time because, you know, when I get to bath time, I feel like I'm already a winner, right? Because I get the opportunity to be around my girls and, and, and all that type of stuff. So that's very important to me. Um, what I think people don't realize, and when, and this is the experience that I gained as a head coach, everybody thinks if I just slid, you know, 16 inches to the, you know, to the right, right. If I just got to that head chair, right. Life would be easy. Right. If I was just a head coach, you know I mean? Life would be easy. They don't realize all the other things that come with being a head coach, right? Number one, you have to be okay with the fact that not everybody's going to like you, right? Like not everybody's going to be happy, right? It's the impossible scenario to make everybody happy. And it's not going to happen, especially within a team. doesn't matter whether it's staff-wise, organization-wise, right? Somebody's always going to want more. They're going to be pulled in all different directions, right? And at the end of the day, when, they, when, you, when, they, when a team loses or wins, right, the loss goes to the coach, the win goes to the players, and that's always how it goes. Yeah. Right. And so yeah, as assistant coaches, and that was the beauty for me going from uh, head coach back to assistant coach, I had a whole different level of respect for that number one chair. Right. And I understood, right, that, you know, I've got to pick up my oar and I've got to make sure I give everything I've got to paddle this thing in the same direction. Because the minute one dude either stops paddling or turns around and paddles back the other direction, right, like they're going to yeah. throw us off course. Right. And now we're going to be delayed at getting to our destination. And ultimately, sometimes that could actually change your destination, not to where you want it to go. Right. So to me, what I have a most respect for, too, working for the boss I work for now, right, is Penny Hardaway is such an unbelievable human being. He's a great person. If you sit with this man for 30 minutes, every 30 seconds, his phone is going to go off. Right. Because think about it. I mean, he's Penny Hardaway. Right. So he's got business ventures. He's got the ex-player stuff that that he's constantly dealing with. He's got, you know, endorsement stuff. And now on top of that, now he's also a college basketball coach, head major college basketball coach, who's won 43 games in two years, more than Calipari, more than Krzyzewski, more than Beheim. I could go down the list right now. I'm just bragging for my guy. But like, the point is, is that he's pulled in so many different directions and he's got to balance it at a different level, right? And that goes back to how I view my job, right? Is to, try to put out these uh, brush fires so he can deal with the forest fire. Right. And yeah. there are forest fires, right. It could be grade situations. It could be, you know, off the court stuff with our guys. It could be, you know, any number of things, obviously in this COVID, you know, unique environment we're in now, right. We are trying to create our own bubble around our guys, but one dude makes a mistake could compromise everybody. Right. So it's yeah. a constantly evolving situation. And for me, I think what people don't realize is, you know, the job really never ends as much as you want to be present with your family and all that stuff. You do those things, but you still might get a call that something happened at the dorms or, you know, something happened late night or a guy needs you right to help them in a situation. And you've got to be ready to, to make sure you're doing those things. So it's uh, it's a lot of fun, but it, it's, it's definitely a responsibility. Coach, one kind of follow-up question. I mean, quickly coming back to Penny Hardaway. I mean, you'll hear a lot of times to say like the great players don't necessarily always make, great coaches just because they, the game came so easy to them. In your opinion, what has Penny Hardaway done really well? I mean, jumping into the coaching seat that has obviously translated, like you said, to the success in the last two years. Well, I think number one, that makes him unique, right? So you've got, you've got guys who maybe relied on bull in a China shop size, you know what I mean? Or unmatched, 
And I mean, he, he was really unmatched. I mean, his athleticism is ridiculous, but just straight up as sheer athleticism, right. To, to, to do what they did. Coach was such a, a unique talent blend of size and skill and decision-making, right. He almost transcended that, posi- that, that position of point guard as kind of like the next iteration of magic Johnson. If it wasn't for injuries, right. He's a, uh, you know, 10 to 13 times, 15 time yeah. all-star type player. Right. Uh, you know, clear cut hall of famer, but what he has the ability to do is he can see the game, right. So easily he can see the game at that next, that third, that fourth, that fifth tier that he doesn't even need to see the film. And he literally can understand exactly what happened and replay back in his mind, almost in a photographic nature, which is very unique. Right. And I think that's what makes him an excellent coach. The other thing that he's done is he started coaching at, at the lowest levels, right. I don't know if some of you guys saw it. He had a buddy who got cancer, brought him back to coach a middle school team. So his intention wasn't to get into coaching, right? His intention was to help his community, right? And he kind of rose up through the ranks of coaching from middle school up to high school, right? And he really cut his teeth working with kids and understanding what they're about and what their DNA is, right? The other beauty of what he has done is he's obviously made a lot of money. Right. So he's not doing this for fame. Right. Job security. You know, I mean, he's the mayor of Memphis practically. Right. So, you know, I mean, he, this, you know, he runs the city. So for him, this is a big give back, but he's not handicapped or handy handcuffed by any sort of constraints where he's searching for something that is related to that is me motivated. Right. What he's searching for is the opportunity to give. Right. Mm-hmm. To give our guys a platform to use the game of basketball the way he did, right? Because if you don't use – you either use basketball or basketball can use you, right? And so he wants to give our guys the tools to use the game, to maximize their potential. And, I mean, the type of people that are recruiting here are guys who want to go on and obviously make money in the game of basketball. And So I think that's very unique. Um, The other thing that he does is he studies, right? And from a defensive standpoint, this is where he needs to get – way more credit than he does. I mean, we were number one in the country in opponent uh, field goal percentage defense last year. The NCAA, they gave us our plaque, 36.1%. We held teams to 36.1%. Right, We were top five in defensive efficiency rating. We were number one at defending the rim. We were number five at defending the three-point line. Right, So he really, really honed in on that. Our guys bought into it, and they executed it, and that's where we cut our teeth. And that's our carrot is the offense, like we mentioned, so we allow our guys, if they're going to buy in on defense, close possessions with rebounds, to have that freedom to go make mistakes on offense, right? To go play fast and open and free on offense. And that's what we were able to execute last year. And that was just the tip of the iceberg because I think we've got a lot of momentum coming into the season, which I'm excited to, you know, whatever iteration of the season we have, excited to see. Coach, this has been this has been fascinating. Really fun listening to you. Um, we appreciate you uh, coming on and being so open and and sharing about so much stuff and um, glad that you got the memo about the beard for the podcast this morning. <laughs> yeah. beard game. I love it. <laughs> I was I, I I I had the uh, I mean I, I really I I was going I was going strong. I had, I had to clean it up for family pictures, my wife's orders, but yeah, the quarantine it, have to make it come back. Oh, it was it was epic. It was epic. <laughs> um, but no, hey, I appreciate you guys having me on. Um, Definitely love what you guys are doing. Respect what you guys are doing. Big fan. So um, this was a lot of fun for me. We appreciate it. Coach, where can yeah, people thank find you, you before we leave? People. To oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm on social media at Top33. 
uh, T-O, P-P, three-three, two-P's, two-threes. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, the, the thing that I love about what you guys are doing is you guys are helping coaches, right? And you're opening up a kind of a, this, this gateway, right, that obviously we know Ryan has done so good with, like opening up the European game and making it accessible to people in the United States or casual fans, which I think is huge. And so for me, um, you know, doing that is giving back to the game in such a way that, you know, uh, just, you know, I have the utmost gratitude and I know I speak for a lot of people that what you guys are doing is tremendous. So keep up the great work. Thank you. Thanks a lot, coach. Thank you for tuning in. Please make sure to subscribe and we'll see you next time on Slapping Class.